Man, it's rough to be Jean Grey's family. Ooh, you are not kidding. Never knowing whether your kid is alive or dead, getting your house busted up by supervillains and superheroes. Getting wiped out by Shi'ar Death Commandos because of your genome's oblique connection to the Phoenix Force. What?! J. Rachel Edden and I'm Miles Stokes, and we are here to explain the X Men because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 91 of Rachel and Miles Explain the X Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. I think that was our shortest cold open ever. It may be. Well, you know, direct to the point. That's uh, what the Shear Death Commando said. Yeah, oh, ooh, <sighs> sorry. ouch. Sorry, sorry. Um, no, I'm not actually sorry. So, what are we doing today? Today we are doing the saddest issue ever written. We are. Now, I thought about this. So we're doing New Mutant 64 and Uncanny X-Men number 303, which I believe is the issue where Ilyana Rasputin dies of the legacy virus and Jubilee is is very sad. That's up there, too. But I think this one may edge it out. This one is sadder. If nothing else, that one had buildup. And this one, just the sheer incomprehension, the curve of what's going to happen is just it's devastating. It really is. Now, how do you want to do this? Because we're just doing this one issue, right? Yeah, we were trying to think of how to place this and whether we should do it with the issues around it in continuity. And we really kind of wanted this one to have room to breathe. But at the same time, like, it's so bleak. It's so sad. And it's only one issue. So actually, I have an idea for how to deal with this. Oh, yeah? You know the basic deal that you never watch Grave of the Fireflies without following it with My Neighbor Totoro? That's a good rule, yeah. It is an essential rule because otherwise you just sort of melt into a puddle of despair. So I decided I was going to try to find the rough X-Men equivalent to my neighbor Totoro, at least in terms of just being a, you know, upbeat, villainless story. And I think I found one that we can do as sort of a chaser to the saddest issue ever. Okay, intriguing. Uh, what is it? Oh, you'll see. I think you'll like it. Okay. So, yeah, I guess before we dive in, we should talk about kind of what's come before. Now, I do want to say the last New Mutants issue we covered was number 61, which was the last issue in Fall of the Mutants. We're going to be skipping 62 and 63 for now. We will come back to those. Right. 64 kind of stands alone in continuity. And again, we wanted to look at it on its own and it made the most sense to pull it out here. So I guess let's talk about what the New Mutants have been up to lately. The New Mutants have had a rough week. They really have. I mean, not only did they have to deal with the Bird Boy saga, which is perhaps not the series' finest hour, but during the fall of the Mutants, when they were on the Animator's Islands near Greenland, Doug Ramsey was shot and killed. And he was shot and killed while Warlock and Sunspot were away, while they were just coming back, actually, from running around with the Fallen Angels. So Warlock came back to save the team just in time to find his best friend dead. Yeah. Doug specifically died during the last battle when the soldiers of the right, Cameron Hodges' group, showed up and the animator, who realized that, you know, he had lost because his boss was coming after him, these kids were coming after him, tried to just get one shot in and kill Wolfsbane. Doug Ramsey, Cypher, jumped in the way, took the bullet, and died before Rain realized what was going on. Now, we covered this when we talked about the fall of the mutants issues, but the new mutants are not taking Doug's death well. So far, they've sort of been diving headfirst into conflicts, assuming that they'll come out okay somehow. And they have, for the most part, by luck or because they've been rescued by more experienced heroes. This is the first time they've really had to face direct and unassailable consequences. And they're having a really hard time with it. And although, honestly, I'd say they're in slightly better shape than the character who's probably hit hardest by Doug's death, and that's Magneto. Now, Magneto has been through some shit, really, ever since he became the headmaster. I mean, Magneto has been through some shit pretty much his whole life. This dude's backstory is the Holocaust. True. 
But he's been through a very specific brand of terrible stuff ever since he took over as headmaster, which is being unable to protect his charges, being told by his best friend and former rival Charles Xavier to keep these kids safe, to raise them into adults successfully, and through both disobedience and the freaking beyonder, he hasn't really been able to do so. And he's been trying so hard. Like, it's not that he's bad at his job, it's that he's just getting thwarted and thwarted and thwarted and thwarted. Yeah. And uh, if you haven't read New Mutants number 61 or listened to our coverage of it, that's the last issue of The Fall of the Mutants. That tackles that topic very well. Actually, if you haven't, I would recommend pausing and going back and listening to that episode. That is episode 87, because all of this directly builds on that. Okay, quick New Mutants roll call, uh, or New Mutants roll call uh, suddenly minus one. Yeah, it's going to be a shorter list this time. Let's see, we have co-leading the team, Danielle Moonstar Mirage and Sam Guthrie, Cannonball. And then also from the original members, we have Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane. Roberto DaCosta, Sunspot. And Warlock and Magic, Eliana Rasputin. And there was Doug Ramsey, but, uh, you know, animator, bullet. Yeah, you know, his one weakness. <laughs> Bullet's my only weakness. I suspect he has a lot of weaknesses. I mean, he's basically just a standard human in terms of defense. It's true, yeah. And this was before they started having X-Men uniforms be bulletproof, or partially bulletproof anyway. I would like to point out the extent to which this is the fault of, like, his teammates and institution, because if he had been better trained, there's a decent chance that he would still be alive. But they were like, no, you don't have a physical mutation. You can't train with the team. Like, really, guys? Really? Anyway, so that's where we find ourselves in New Mutant 64. It's basically the team dealing with the direct aftermath of Doug's death. It's still very current, very present for them. We open, in fact, with a replay of Doug's death, slightly modified. Wolfsbane is in the danger room. She's playing back through that final battle with the animator, trying to find ways that she could have saved Doug. Yeah, and this time she actually does. She manages to kick Doug aside while dodging the bullet the animator fires at her. She turns the right soldier who she's fighting's gun on the animator, killing him, and then drives some kind of big shard of wood through the helmet into the face of the right soldier. And Doug's okay, although she just committed murder. Which is, I think, kind of a telling thing, that what it would cost to save Doug's life is the loss of that, you know, degree of innocence. Yeah, intent. and Rain seems completely okay with it. I mean, she's so overjoyed that Doug is alive, even this simulacrum of Doug in the danger room, that the fact that she's just ended two lives, it doesn't even seem to register well, for her. Well, two simulated lives, but unfortunately, somehow the danger room's caught in a loop, or it's working from the original footage, and so Doug then dies anyway. Yeah, and he has the same last words he did before. Don't be mad at me, Rain. I promise I'll never do it again. Which, man, even a full few issues after Doug dying, that's still harsh. It's exactly the same. It plays back exactly the same. Rain has been up all night playing through this in the danger room, and Sunspot comes down and interrupts her as she's grieving once again for Doug, trying to convince her to leave off and get some sleep. Yeah, they're seeing Doug's body the next day. And I find this part really interesting right here. So we're used to Sunspot being probably the least mature of the New Mutants. I mean, you know, Rain is also very young, but Sunspot's always been the hot-headed one who doesn't think anything through. Well, they're different kinds of childish, I think. Sunspot tends to be much more impetuous and much more impulsive, and Rain tends to be much more unsure. Yeah, and also naive. But what we see here is a sunspot who seems to really be growing up. Now, maybe it's having been through all the stuff in Fallen Angels. Maybe it's the fact that, you know, someone just died and he's dealt with this before when his girlfriend Juliana was killed by the Hellfire Club back in the New Mutants graphic novel. But regardless, here's a sunspot who I would say is in some ways more adult than he ever was when Chris Claremont was writing him. For me, the point where sunspot really clicks into this mode is the conversation that he and Mirage have in New Mutants number 61 which I think is the issue where Simonson just really, really clicks into a lot of the characters, including him, and where he kind of steps up and starts to step into slightly more of a leadership role for the team. 
I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about how when Simonson takes over the New Mutants, her characters come off as a lot younger. I mean, that was editorially mandated by Anne Nesenti at the time due to reader requests. But I think what we see here is a group of characters who are really starting to even out in terms of their age presentation, in terms of their maturity, in terms of seeming like the characters we've read 60-something issues about already. Now, Rain has been in the Danger Room all night. She's found 17 different ways she could have saved Doug, and she's just obsessing over this. But she's not the only character who's doing that, who's caught in that kind of loop. Because upstairs, Magic is watching the news footage of the X-Men dying in Dallas over and over and over again. uh, This is something that happened in the fall of the mutants. The X-Men sacrificed their lives to basically save reality in Dallas. No one else knows that they were then immediately brought back to life and shunted to Australia. So as far as Liana knows, her brother is just straight up dead. I gotta say, being an X-Men character really sucks when crossovers happen, because not only do you have to deal with all the horrible stuff that happens to your own team, you probably overlap in some way with at least one of the other teams, and you have to deal with their horrible stuff too. So, you know, Ilyana's sitting here, well, my teammate died, my brother died for an entirely different reason, my headmaster couldn't protect the first person and won't let me go uh, look for the second person, god damn it. Everything is terrible. Yeah. And I mean, Ilyana's never been in great shape emotionally anyway, so right now she is just at a breaking point. And as she watches TV, she just sort of flips out, summons the Soul Sword from Limbo, where it's been preventing Sim from taking over Limbo, Sim where her demon rival. Where it's been the only thing preventing Sim from taking over Limbo. When she pulls the Soul Sword, his techno-organic whatever the hell is happening spreads, and he gets more of a foothold in Limbo. Yeah. So it's got very direct consequences. And she turns into her dark child form, you know, looking all demony and various archaic armor stuff, and is just sort of raging, freaking out when Cannonball shows up to stop her. Put the sword back in Limbo where it belongs. You're a, a girl, Yana, not some sort of horns demon. I can't. You mean won't. A lot you know about it, Sam Guthrie. I'll be stuck like this as the Dark Child forever, and it'll serve me right. The TV news shows and specials keep playing the scenes where the X-Men die over and over. I taped them all. I must have the whole fight now. That stupid cameraman was there. Hey, hey, show some respect for Neil Conan, Eliana. Oh, fine. And Scott's stupid wife was there, but for all my vaunted sorceress power, for all the fact that I can teleport, I couldn't get through the magic screen blocking Dallas. I couldn't help. So now I just watch and watch and watch. And she teleports away. I mean, Magneto has grounded them all. None of them are supposed to use their powers. But even after officially deciding to kind of be their own rebellious super team at the end of New Mutant 61, Ilyana cares probably the least of all of them. She feels the most betrayed by Magneto for not letting her try to find Colossus, for not being able to help in some way. And in practical terms, she's probably the hardest to ground, being as how she is a teleporter. Yeah, that too. And so those scenes have been hard with Rain and Roberto, with Sam and Ilyana, but of course, Mirage and more relevantly, Warlock, everybody knew this was going to be the hard part. Now, Warlock has sort of addressed Doug's death at the end of Fall of the Mutants, but he clearly didn't get it, didn't really process it. And in New Mutant 62 and 63, those issues don't really take place in mainstream continuity in the present day. Like, 62 is about a letter Magma wrote home, 63 is sort of a weird flashback dream sequence. So this is really the first time we've seen Warlock be faced with the fact that his best friend, his self-dearest friend, Doug, is dead. And the rest of this episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men will be replaced with 25 minutes of uncontrollable sobbing. I mean, kind of. So we've both read this issue a bunch of times. Um, It had been a little while for me, but even knowing exactly what would happen, I mean, goddamn, you guys, this issue hits hard. Yeah, it's devastating. So, okay, let's get on to some devastation, because, you know, it is our journalistic duty to do so. I think we should talk a little bit about the Technarch at this point and how Warlock works, how Warlock conceptualizes life and death. 
Yeah, so Warlock is, of course, a techno-organic alien, and with his species, there's the Magus and the Warlock. There's the father and the son. The father always has to try to kill the son. The son only lives if he can instead kill his father and become a new Magus. Well, and Life Glow, you know, the energy is exchangeable. It's what he consumes, but it's something that he can also give. And, you know, when he was pretty much burned out, Doug had given him some of his Life Glow, and he doesn't see any reason it shouldn't go both ways. Like, he doesn't quite understand that for humans, dead is dead. Now, this is also complicated a little bit by the fact that he is looking over Mirage's shoulder as she's watching Night of the Living Dead. You know, classic zombie movie. You know, you were talking when we were at breakfast about how that was just an incredibly morbid and inappropriate thing to be watching when you're mourning a friend. I can totally see this as something Mirage and something the New Mutants would do, because they've always been sort of all about whistling in the dark and, in general, trying to reclaim situations from the ironic side out. Yeah, well, especially Danny as written by Louise Simonson. I think you're right, because Simonson's Daniel Moonstar, she has a more wry, dark sense of humor even than she did under Claremont, I think. Dude, she's a Valkyrie. She's a death goddess. Well, you know, that too, yeah. So death is no stranger to her. And so Warlock is talking to Danny as she's watching the movie and just saying, hey, you know, why can't I infect Doug with a transmode virus and absorb his life glow? I mean, that's what we do on my world when somebody dies. And as Danny's explaining why that's really not how it works with humans, that's not respectful or right, she inadvertently triggers her powers and manifests what Warlock most wants to see in his confused reaction to the movie, which is an undead zombie Doug Ramsey, you know, all green and slack-jawed, but, you know, moving around and right there, and Warlock is overjoyed. Self-friend Doug, you came back. Self can now protect love, cherish you as self-friend deserves. And then Doug turns into basically a big zombie magus version of himself. Yell! Alarm! Alarm! self dearest friend Doug attacks! Self did not protect love cherish friend! Friend will transform self to walking dead entity! And on the one hand, it's a little ridiculous because Warlock has this bizarre version of life and death and zombies and maguses and warlocks. But, you know, in a lot of ways, Warlock is a child. Warlock has never been exposed to any of these concepts and he just doesn't get the finality of death. And or, watching zombie movies is not helping. He just wants to find a way to bring his friend back. And he doesn't understand that he can't. That's the part of the issue that breaks me. It's not how much Warlock misses Doug. It's that what Warlock has to learn in this is the finality of it. And Mirage does her best to comfort him, to help him understand as he's, you know, covering his eyes and then growing more little eyeballs out of the weird techno tendrils coming out of his head, which is kind of cool. On this world, it's ashes to ashes and dust to dust, and that's the end of it. Doug couldn't come back if he wanted to, which he won't. The only place a magic zap brings people back to life is in horror movies. And what Warlock internalizes from this is, okay, well, clearly, there've got to be horror movie elements. That's okay, I can make this work. Oh, Warlock. And as if this is not a sufficient kick to the chest, the next day we cut to the viewing. Or, more specifically, the students leaving for the viewing. Now, this scene right here, I really dig. And I do want to interject here. Since we're covering just one issue, we are going to go into a lot greater depth. That is very intentional, very deliberate. But as they're leaving for the viewing, all of the characters are, of course, just in their normal, maybe late fall, early winter clothing, just looking like civilians, including Magneto, waiting to meet up to carpool over. And just the normalcy of this, I kind of feel like when you have a character die in a superhero comic, the fact that everyone is superheroes... And tend to come to the funeral in costume. Uh, yeah, that kind of cuts the sadness, the horror of it, because that's just part of what goes with the superhero genre, right? Right, it makes it feel less real. It makes it feel like part of a revolving door. And this isn't a superhero death. This isn't a superhero funeral. This is the New Mutants all-looking human warlock, you know, in one of his human disguises. With a terrible mullet. With a terrible mullet. And there's just a degree of normalness to it 
that makes it that much sadder and makes it feel again that much more final. And I think for me, seeing Magneto in his civilian clothing just as the headmaster, just as the grown-up, and just the sheer cold rage and just utter hopelessness that Brett Blevins, the artist, manages to really crystallize in the exaggerated way he draws Magneto's with his sort of upturned eyebrows and pinched shut face. I have such mixed feelings about Blevins on this issue. I feel like I'm going to end up saying that a lot. But um, <laughs> because the way he draws the characters, the more human looking characters' faces, especially, is so good. And especially Magneto. And I really don't like his warlock. And for me, warlock is kind of the emotional core of this particular story. And I'm, ugh, I'm torn. See, I hear what you're saying on the warlock thing, but I kind of like the way he draws warlock. I mean, you know, he's not quite as realistically alien as he is when drawn by some artists like, say, Sienkiewicz or Leonardi. But the fact that he's so cartoony allows Blevins to really capture a lot of emotion, a lot of very human emotion on his face, the same way cartoons use exaggeration to make it clear what a character is feeling. It's not the exaggeration. There are a lot of specifics about the way he draws Warlock that bug me. That's fair. I'm I'm not going to go into details. And honestly, it's largely a personal taste thing. And I think it often is with Brett Blevins' art. I mean, his art is immensely controversial. Um, More people seem to dislike it in retrospect than seem to like it. But I will say, like, if you want to see what Brett Blevins can do, in the same way that if you want to see what Louis Simonson can do as a writer, New Mutants number 64 is probably the issue to look at. Blevins manages to capture just sadness and disbelief and resignation and pity And just all of these somewhat subtle emotions, emotions that, you know, you're not going to have like a big smiley face or a big frowny face when you want to convey them. And he does it very, very well, I think. He does, yeah. I want you to know that I was forced to lie to Doug's parents about the manner of Doug's death. They believe that we were on a camping trip and that Doug wandered off into the woods alone. We heard a shot and rushed back to find Doug's body. It's hunting season. It happens. And I think... They believed me. And man, I gotta say, I feel for Magneto so hard on this. Being in the position of being the adult in this situation is so uniquely horrible. I remember really distinctly when I was teaching, when I was running a writing center, one of my students actually killed himself and people were coming in and students were like coming to me. And I was, you know, two years out of undergrad and I was just completely out of my depth and thinking, I do not have any more answers than anyone else, because you don't. Like, that's the thing about adulthood and authority, is you don't actually have any more insight. You know, it doesn't make anything easier. It's just that you have a much more baseline level understanding that someone still has to take out the trash and lock the doors. And I mean, thinking about it, Magneto doesn't really have anyone to talk to. I mean, who have we seen him talk to since he took over as headmaster? There's the portrait of Charles Xavier in his office that he talks to sometimes. There's the principal of the other local high school that he can't really tell anything about any of this. Because their entire friendship is like casual conversations outside dances. There's the other principal of, you know, the roughly analogous school who he can't talk to because she's actively evil. Yeah. And so Magneto is just completely alone. I mean, I think he hoped to form some kind of a relationship with the students. But that just keeps breaking further and further anytime anything at all happens. And so who does he have now? Basically, the Hellfire Club, maybe? The hope that things will get better and he can connect with some of those people? I think this is something we see again and again and again with Magneto. That even though they're rivals, like without Xavier, he is basically just floating in space. He is completely isolated. He doesn't really have anyone who he relates to. He's not good at forming connections. And yeah, he's so 
so, so alone in this, you know, in responsibility and authority, both what he's been given and what he's taken on. I mean, I'm thinking about when Magneto will eventually emotionally connect with somebody, and that's maybe like Rogue in the Savage Land, dozens of issues from now. I can't think of anything until then. Yeah. So Magneto's life is terrible. And so are the New Mutants' lives. They get to the viewing, and Rain is trying to talk to Magneto, trying to just, you know, connect to him, break through this stony wall of silence. You're still angry at us, aren't you, sir? You blame us for sneaking out to go on a mission? You, th- you think it's our fault Doug died. And he doesn't even respond to her. He just keeps walking up to Doug's parents. Mr. and Mrs. Ramsey, words cannot express how sorry I am about what happened. Which takes us to the actual body. And again, Warlock just baffled at the notion of death. Yeah, he's talking about how clearly this isn't Doug. I mean, he doesn't look anything like Doug. And, you know, sure enough, he's embalmed. There's wax and fluids and whatever else one uses for embalming. And his friends have to kind of explain to him what's going on. And he eventually freaks out and runs outside and Rain follows him. And she's equally upset and horrified for other reasons. Then Danny comes after her. Look, Rain, sweetie, you're religious, right? And Doug died a hero. He was a good guy. Don't you think he's gone to a better place and he's happy in heaven? I, I should think that, but, but I'm wicked, and I just think that he's not here with us anymore. But, Rain, if it was God's will... It's not my will. Doug was good and kind. He was my friend. He died saving me. It was my fault he died. And, and I didn't even notice, and I could have saved him. I loved him, and I didn't even notice when he died, and they're going to shut him up in that coffin and bury him in the ground where it's cold and dark, and I'll never see him again. Oh, man. This dialogue right here, I love the fact that there's repetition, sloppy syntax. She mentions not noticing a couple times in as many sentences, and, like, it just rings so true. I mean, Louise Simonson, yes, she's a very different writer than Chris Claremont, and yes, the beginning of her run was incredibly rocky on New Mutants, but by this point, she has these characters. Like, this right here could very well be my definitive Rain Sinclair. Yeah, once she gets the characters' voices, like, these become the versions of them in my head. Absolutely. Even Brett Blevins art here, like, you know, again, some people love it, some people hate it. But this scene right here, paired with Simonson's words, just rings so true to me. So Warlock still can't wrap his head around what's going on. And he decides that obviously everyone else is out of their damn minds. It's up to him to fix it. Now, Magneto has banned them from leaving the school. So he decides, okay, well, well, what I'll do, because it always goes so well in the past. I'm just going to sneak out. No one will notice. I'll fix everything. I'll bring Doug back. It'll all be okay. This next part is was really hard to uh, take notes on and to write an outline for because all of it is just solid gold. Every panel, every line is perfect. And also because it's really hard to see a screen when you're crying. So um, I just played through The Last of Us for the second time, and finishing that game with all these sort of despair it entails, and then immediately going to where I left off in my notes, which is this scene in New Mutants number 64, god damn. It's one of those things, too. I mean, with both of them, like, I feel like knowing what's coming almost makes it worse because you've got the weight of that anticipation. Man, I remember the first time we played through The Last of Us together, and you were coming into it totally fresh. And you'd read the script because you were editing The Last of Us comic, right? Yeah, I'd read the script and I'd seen rough cuts of most of the cutscenes at this point, so I knew exactly what was going to happen when. I'm not going to spoil anything, but man, watching you react to stuff and watching you build up hope and stuff. (laughs) Well, there are some happy things in the game. Occasionally. Oh my god, speaking of which, you know, we don't like talk a lot about non-X stuff, but man, if you're a gamer, The Last of Us is so good and Left Behind, the DLC is so amazing. Oh God, that game is where my heart lives. Seriously. But we digress, as we so often do. 
So going through the scene right here, we could just like read all the dialogue, but you know, this is a comic, we are a podcast, and if we're going to even come close to capturing what makes this work so well, we kind of have to do it differently. So we're going to do our best. So we're going to read about half the dialogue. Yeah, basically, there's going to be a lot of dialogue. So yeah, Warlock heads out through the keyhole of the Xavier Mansion, actually, over to the funeral home where he saw Doug's body that he didn't believe was Doug's body. Self-friend, are you there? Friend Sam explained that self-friend is not really dead, but in a far dimension called Heaven, which is reached by prayer. And a magic zap will cause resurrection of the living dead entities like in the movies, so self-friend must be embalmed and put away in the dark ground to be safe. But self will miss self-dearest friend Doug very sadly, and self fears that self-friend will be frightened in dark and lonely dimension of living dead entities. Kudos on all those compound words, Jay. It's hard to Warlock. There's a lot of caffeine involved. <laughs> and then Warlock gets an idea. Once self-friend Doug gave self part of dear friend's own energy so that self might live. Self-dearest friend, friend Danny, has prohibited self from consuming self-friend's life energy as self would on self's own world. But friend Danny said nothing about giving energy back. And Doug, of course, will not take Warlock's life energy, Warlock's life glow, because he's not a technarch, he's a human, and we don't really work that way. Well, be- and he's just straight up dead. Uh, that too, yeah. And so uh, Warlock has another idea, and this is kind of how this works. Warlock is just endlessly optimistic, figuring, well, okay, if this thing doesn't work, maybe I can try this thing. Well, if that thing doesn't work, maybe I can try this thing. And it kind of makes sense, because he's still a stranger in a strange land being on Earth, and that's how he's learned. Maybe, self-friend Doug, when you see how those in this dimension miss you, you will decide to take self's magic energy zap after all. So he picks Doug up. And I want to go back to the cover of this issue at this point, because the cover is a very clearly dead Doug Ramsey with a maniacally grinning warlock behind him, sort of holding him up and partially techno-organically integrated with him. And that's kind of what happens. It's like a ghoulish parody of the way the two of them have merged in the past during fights or for Doug to use warlock's powers for analysis. And that's what happens for a lot of the rest of the issue is Warlock kind of half animating the corpse of Doug Ramsey and bringing him around and being a little entertained to find that, oh, his body's very stiff. That must be why zombies move like they do. Like he's just not making the connection of and that's not okay. Oh, God. So what he's doing is walking Doug around to the people and places that Doug cared about the most in hopes that one of them will inspire Doug to want to come back to life enough that he'll let Warlock give him some of his energy. I mean, goddamn, you guys. Like, okay, so this plotline's kind of exaggerated. Warlock could be considered comedically childish, but the idea of just taking that kind of incomprehension and disbelief that real people do feel when they lose somebody close to them when something tragic happens, that we see Rain doing in a much more believable way, and just kind of distilling it to its purest, uncomprehending form of this childlike alien being. Well, and the sense of betrayal that goes with losing someone you're that close to, that they should have found a way to stay if they'd really cared enough. I mean, we all know better, but there's always that sort of nagging thread of that. And what Warlock's doing just zeroes in on it so much because what he thinks, I mean, what he genuinely believes at this point is that Doug isn't coming back because Doug doesn't want to. Exactly. Yeah. Because how much Warlock misses him isn't enough. Yeah. And so he takes him on his magical mystery tour of showing the corpse off to loved ones. And I want to talk a little more about the art, specifically the coloring in these scenes. Now, the 1980s weren't exactly known for their excellent coloring a lot of the time, but one thing that really works right here is that since this is taking place during the night, a lot of the panels are in all blue tones, but not for everything. So Warlock is always his usual yellow coloration, and Doug is this kind of sickly green. In a way that's not realistic, but because it's a comic book, you sort of, you know, as a reader, you buy, because colors aren't always literal in comics. And that just casts this kind of sickly tone over every interaction Warlock and Doug's body have with everyone. 
The thing about this story, you know, that that brings up for me is that it's very close and its physical trappings, even visually, are very much the trappings of a horror story, but it's not one. It's ghoulish, but it's not scary, exactly. I mean, it is for some of the characters, sure. But for you, the reader, you know exactly what's going on, and so much of horror is rooted in the unknown. There's just not any of that here. So Warlock traipses Doug's corpse around, first tries to take it to Doug's parents, to the hotel where they're staying, and sort of hangs it outside the window in a sort of weird reverse little match girl scenario. And Doug's parents are understandably horrified. Doug's mother thinks it's a ghost. So Warlock's like, okay, well, this won't work. I guess I'll just take him to the school. That'll be better. That'll be better. That'll be fine. Everyone will be overjoyed to see him. Specifically, I'll take him to Rain, to Wolfsbane, the one who has been having the hardest time processing any of this. And when she sees Doug at the window with the grinning face of Warlock kind of, you know, blocked by the top windowsill, she is, in fact, overjoyed. Doug? Doug, you aren't dead. You aren't. It wasn't real. It was all a misunderstanding, some terrible mistake, wasn't it? Doug? And as Doug doesn't respond, and as she sees Warlock, she screams. As suddenly what Warlock is trying to do, at least in a vague sense, makes sense to her. Self-wanted dearest friend Doug to experience resurrection of living dead entities from heaven dimension, so self-took dear friend Doug to show him that people loved him and wanted him alive so that he would take self's life energy and- Man, just having Warlock's, like, large, endless dialogue boxes here with the compound words all crammed together, sometimes even sharing consonants, like, friends Doug just has one D in the middle. It works so well. Like, Jay, the way you're doing Warlock's dialogue, I mean, Warlock always speaks quickly, but the way you're doing that kind of crammed together, compressed, I can see that it's just Warlock trying to think and speak fast enough to make all of this make sense to him and to his friends. It's very common in comics to italicize words for emphasis. That happens a lot, especially in Claremont and Simonson's writing. And one thing the letterer does with New Mutants... This is, this is Orzakowski at this point, right? Yes, Tom Orzakowski has lettered a huge amount of X-Men comics. We haven't talked about him in a while, and I want to pop back and shout out some props because Tom Orzakowski is amazing. We've brought him up mostly in context of Chris Claremont and the fact that Orzakowski is the guy who makes Claremont's dialogue fit into balloons and onto pages with remaining room for artwork, which is amazing. It is a phenomenal accomplishment in itself. Yeah, he's a very, very expressive letterer. And what he does here is he uses those italics that I mentioned earlier in the middle of those compound words. So self-dearest friend Doug, that sort of pitching up as you read it in your head really adds to that sense of franticness in Warlock's dialogue. Yeah, when I read Warlock, the emphasis is pretty much straight out of the comic and just based on the emphasis in the text. And the other mutants here reign scream and show up, and some of them are furious with Warlock. But they do manage to start to talk Rain down and help her understand what Warlock's trying to do. Oh, Warlock, you feel as bad as I do, don't you? But Warlock, it won't work. Nothing will work. You've made me realize he is dead and all the wishing or pretending in the world can't make it otherwise. You can't carry him around like that, Warlock. You have to put him back. No, men will put self-dearest friend in a dark hole. Self-friend will be frightened. Self-friends never see your friend again. Warlock, he's dead, and we have to bury his body, because Warlock, what you have there is only a body, a shell. Whatever made it really Doug has gone away. It's not just the wax, the embalming stuff that makes it not look or seem like him anymore. It's just a shell we're burying. Doug, Doug's, Doug's safe in heaven. Give it back, Warlock. Please, let him go. This is the arc more than any, I think, where the new mutants grow up. Having the youngest and in many ways the most childlike member of the team be the one who finally has to bite the bullet and explain death to Warlock, and in doing so come to terms with it herself, is a really, really powerful way to do that. 
And so Warlock agrees to. He doesn't seem to fully understand, but he knows his friends are probably right, and so they teleport back to the funeral home with Doug's body. And after some brief hijinks with the funeral director calling the police because the body's missing, they do manage to get it back into the coffin and get out safely. And Doug is finally the next day buried. And man, even at the very end, Warlock, the fact that he still doesn't fully understand it, but he accepts it, is that much more poignant. Goodbye, self-friend. Self will miss you. And a piece of self will always be in Heaven Dimension of Living Dead with you. Oh man, Heaven Dimension of Living Dead. <laughs> Jeez, Warlock. So, okay, the issue doesn't actually end there, because New Mutants, like all of the X-Books, are very serialized, so what we get is a little bit of what's coming next. Yeah, and also, why would you end with, you know, that kick in the teeth when you could add another extra shove to it? Oh my god. Right. Ilyana's called the surviving New Mutants together to watch her collection of Dallas footage of the X-Men's death and to tell them that she has realized she knows whose fault it is. It's Forge's fault, and he needs to die. His sorceries caused that destruction, and my brother's death stopped it, and I'm going to make him pay, sorcerer though he is. Forge can't imagine what that bleak victory is going to cost him. So, yay, everything is terrible. So that's New Mutants number 64. I know that Louis Simonson has said in interviews that this is her favorite issue of New Mutants that she ever did, and I completely agree. I think this is by far the apex of her work. And her work, you know, it really varies in quality. There's the Bird Boy stuff and the Gossamer stuff that aren't so hot. But then there's stuff like this, and then there's her just nailing the personalities of these characters, making them feel young, but also very mature beyond their years, making them feel fully fleshed out, three-dimensional. This issue, man, this issue wrecked me when I was 19. It wrecks me at 33, and I can't imagine that it will ever not. She just nails every landing here. And as mixed as I may be on Blevins' Warlock, you know, what he does with the other characters and expression is just, damn. It's a lot of comic. It is. So that was, um... Really depressing. Um, you said you had another thing. I do. So I was thinking we should follow this with something that was just fluffy and upbeat. I actually put out a call. I emailed a bunch of our friends asking what the happiest X-Men story was. And I got a bunch of suggestions. And like four-fifths of them were ones we'd already covered. So stuff like Scott and Jean's wedding. Or the X-Men issue where they deliver all of the, the stolen stuff for Christmas. And I was leaning toward a later New Mutants annual. But then my friend Eleanor hooked me up with this amazing Amazing, amazing blast from the past. Okay, this is apparently Tattoo Tales X-Men Masquerade. What makes it a tattoo tale? It has a center spread that is 22 temporary tattoos. They're very impressive. We can put them on after we finish recording if you want. Oh man, and it looks like a couple of them are already missing from whoever had this book before us, They which are, is awesome. and the tattoos have nothing to do with the story. So this is part of a line that Random House put out in the early 90s. This particular book came out in 1991. It's written by Ron Fadis and Justine Corman with art by Aristides Ruiz and Dana and Del Thompson. And apparently Tattoo Tales was a whole series. There's actually another X-Men book in it called Spellbound, which I know absolutely nothing about. But today we are going to talk about X-Men Masquerade because it is the most upbeat X-Men related thing that I could find. And also because it is just batshit fucking ridiculous. I fully approve of these things. Okay, so what happens in uh, Tattoo Tales X-Men Masquerade? And a uh, further question, does this have anything to do with the classic X-Men backup story where they go to a masquerade party and Scott and Jean make out but don't realize that they're each other and so they doubt their relationship and then there's that abusive boyfriend trying to kill his girlfriend? Is it like that one? In that it is not basically a hackneyed rehashing of the song Escape, no. Oh, the, the Pina Colada song? Yeah. I never thought we would reference that in regards to a kid's book. I'm so sorry to everyone who now has it stuck in their head. That song is so bad. 
Um, okay, so what's this all about? It looks like it's got an X-Men like animated series 90s sort of aesthetic. That seems it does. to be the, the team lineup. I mean, I think it's specifically a tie into the X-Men animated series. I think this for a number of reasons, based on, you know, the costumes, based on the lineup, and based on the fact that Cyclops is the absolute goddamn worst in it. But I'm actually just going to let the book introduce itself because it gives a fairly good introduction to the whole setup. It was a dark and stormy night. Well, that's a classic. And the X-Men had just returned from a vicious battle with the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Professor Xavier was concerned about the team's morale. What if the Brotherhood regrouped to exact their vengeance? Much like after the mutant massacre with the Marauders. Would the X-Men be ready? Jubilee's birthday came as a welcome relief from these concerns. And the birthday girl knew exactly what kind of a party she wanted. A masquerade. Okay, okay, this is very charming and, and silly, and I feel good about that because Doug Ramsey isn't dead. Or maybe he is, but not like, you know, his body isn't being paraded around. Right, and all of the X-Men are super into this, except for Wolverine, who says, One mask's enough for this beauty. Cyclops, on the other hand, is not only totally into it, but tells Wolverine off for being a temperamental loner, which... Pots and kettles, psych. Right? I know. But again, it's animated Cyclops who is officially the absolute worst. Okay, so why can't Wolverine come aside from being a jerk? Wolverine cannot make it to the party anyway, actually, it turns out, because he has secret business to attend to in Canada. Oh, that can't be good. I know about Canada. Canada business with Canadians. And Wendigos. Canadian Wendigos. And, like, conspiracies of Wendigos. Canadian conspiracies of Wendigos. Yeah. He's got Canada stuff to do. He never elaborates on it. But the rest of the X-Men are totally into it. And according to the book, in fact, finding disguises that completely conceal their identities makes fighting sentinels seem easy. I'm not so sure about that. You know, they're not really prepared for this. They've been training to fight to protect a world that hates and fears them, not to dress in wacky slapdash costumes. It's the danger room, not the tailor room. That doesn't even make sense. Eh? Eh? I mean, this book doesn't either, though. So... Anyway, even though they're all busy working on their costumes, they're all also ready to pitch and to help give Jubilee the best darn birthday party ever. So Storm and Jean, you know, hang the decorations, Storm's flying, Jean's using her telekinesis, Jubilee plans the music, Gambit polishes the silverware, but he notes that he would rather polish off the villains than the silverware. Which sort of implies that he's eating the silverware? Or the villains? This is getting weird, man. Whatever, just run with it. And Beast utterly ignores the fact that Jubilee has explicitly planned the music, and he shows up on the day of the party with three unlabeled CDs that he demands that she play. Now, I'd like to believe that these are actually just, like, demo reels from his shitty garage band. Oh man, I bet they're called Stars and Garters, or Gars and Starters, because shitty bands have to have, like, sort of wordplay-ish names. I feel like Beast's garage band would be, like, really, really, really intense math rock. And now it is time for the party, and let me actually just pull out the book here so you can see these costumes, because holy shit, this is amazing. Oh man, wow. Xavier's not even trying. He's not. He's wearing a red tuxedo and an arrow through his head headband. Okay, so what have we got? We've got Harbo Marks, got Wild Bill Hickok, we have a fucking Sentinel, which is in singularly poor taste somebody, Frankenstein's monster. Oh, we have a spooky ghost, like a sheet ghost. We do, yeah. It's very Charlie Brown. We have a biker wearing one of Cyclops's two non-uniform outfits from the show and a helmet with a red visor. Way to fucking phone it in, Summers. And we have a clown. Oh, and a vampire lady. Oh, and a vampire. Yeah, a sexy vampire. Yeah. Wait, so this is a kid's book, right? Like, designed for children in the mid-90s, right? Indeed. How many children in the mid-90s have any idea who Harpo Marx is? I did. Well, yes, but you're not a normal human being, Jay. I applaud this book. Up your game, uh, effort. children of the 90s. That's right. That's right. You, you can't uh, force kids to evolve by pandering to them. So Harpo Marx, it is. 
Harpo Marx, for anybody who might be a child of the 90s and not familiar with the Marx Brothers, which you should be, was one of the Marx Brothers. He uh, communicated mainly with like a bicycle horn. Well, he also played a mouth harp and he also played the actual harp, which is where he got the name. So just picture, you know, a curly haired blonde dude with a bicycle horn and a funny hat. We'll put pictures in the as mentioned because you should be able to feast your eyes on the glory of this amazing damn book. Yes. <laughs> it's so great. Um, so anyway. Oh, and they're all really committed to staying in character, too, which is amazing. So I'll turn back to the book. The motorcyclist quickly organized a game of charades, but Wild Bill Hickok guessed every answer. Unfortunately for the motorcyclist, that, as opposed to his completely half-assed costume, is the giveaway because Xavier pulls him aside and whispers in his ear, Your face may be hidden, but your leadership is showing Cyclops. At which point Cyclops blushes and checks his fly. He calls it his leadership. I wonder if he does. That would be so fucking funny. Okay, so, but there's a problem, it looks like? There is a problem, because there is an extra guest at the party. And, you know, you'd think this would be easy to solve. There are two telepaths here, right? But Professor Xavier's powers aren't working. He can't tell who anyone is, and all of their costumes are so airtight, are so well-assembled, that except for Cyclops, who's given himself away by sucking, again, animated Cyclops is the worst. He has no idea who anyone is either. So how does one find out who is in all of these perfect costumes and who is really a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which is probably Mystique, who would shapeshift and you couldn't tell anyway? Well, Cyclops correctly extrapolates that Wild Bill is in fact Jean Grey, which among other things means that she was totally cheating at charades. Damn it, Jean! Right, and uh, the ID Harpo Marx as Gambit because he's so flirty, which is actually kind of ironic because Chico was actually the one of the Marx brothers who was just continually chasing women, which is how he got his name. Now I'm just imagining Gambit, like, flirting with a bicycle horn, which I bet he could totally do. He did have mutant charm, according to a brief era of the 90s, so I think that would still extend to the universal language, that of bicycle horns. And everyone else, or almost everyone else, the the next several characters, the idea by manufacturing various disasters and seeing how they react. So they drop something, the Sentinel catches it with one of his feet, identifying him as Beast in, again, a singular lapse of taste and judgment. Someone drops the punch bowl on the floor and the vampire flies up to avoid it, meaning that she's either Storm or Rogue. And she stays in character the whole time, too, which is just amazing. (laughs) And it turns out the vampire is, in fact, Rogue because Jean lures Storm into revealing herself by starting a fucking kitchen fire. Because, sure, First you cheat at charades and then it's arson. Damn it, Greg, get your act together. What's the recommended age range for this book? I don't know, the age where they're encouraging arson to see who your friends are, I guess. That leaves, I believe, the Frankenstein, and that turns out to be Jubilee, who is betrayed by her tendency to use terrible teenager slang. Right, and so I guess that just leaves the clown, right? And the best part is how they figure out who the clown is. Because the clown's been being kind of an asshole. Like, he stole Cyclops' chair, and he's, like, elbowing people out of the way. And Cyclops works out that the clown must be Wolverine because he's such a fucking douche. Oh, yeah, and it looks like he tricks him into popping his claws to cut the cake? That's not sanitary. Yeah, I think we've talked about this before and just how upsetting it is every time Wolverine does that. Like, we know where those have been. Inside ninjas. And your own arms. Right, and I feel like Wolverine's maybe not the most hygienic person. This book is amazing. This is the most amazing book ever. And you'd think that the resolution would be that he'd meant to surprise Jubilee from the start, but no, it turns out he just finished up with his Canada business early and then got in touch with Beast and was like, can you burn some CDs with a selective cyanic suppressor hidden in them? Because why the hell not imperil the entire team in the name of a birthday surprise for a teenager? Wow, if this was continuity, that could have totally been a cold open. Damn. It gets even better. What? It gets even better, the closing. Storm asked Wolverine the question all the X-Men wanted to know. What made you think of dressing as a clown? My tutu was in the wash. 
Wow. Right? Jay, thank you for sharing this with me. This is amazing. We need to find the other Tattoo Tales X-Men book We now. really do. This needs to be a thing. Okay, so Wolverine dressed as a clown, cutting cake with his dirty, dirty claws. I gotta say, I'm feeling better now. I forgot, too. There's also one of the greatest panels ever, because this is sort of half storybook, half comic book, which is a full-scale Frankenstein's monster hugging Wolverine, who's dressed from the neck down in a clown suit. (laughs) We need to just replace our logo right now. It's amazing. Like, this is going to be my Valentine's forever. Wow. And with that, I certainly have questions about many things, but so do you. All right, Harp Guy on Tumblr asks, Is Harp Guy really Harpo who's really Gambit? I think that's fair to assume. Okay, cool. I can't get my head around Douglock properly. In Uncanny 313, he's generated from the dead cells of Doug and Warlock, but then in Excalibur 107, Kitty goes to Doug's grave and his body is still there. Where does Douglock get his Doug Ramsiness from? Okay, so this is a little bit ambiguous, and uh, to clarify for those of you who are mainly familiar with X-Men through our show or who haven't read the stuff with Douglock... Douglock was a character who appeared to be a techno-organic version of Doug Ramsey, who came back from the dead and ran around with Excalibur for a while. I am 90% sure that we covered him in a cold open at some point during the first year. We probably did. But anyway, so we later find out that Douglock is really just Warlock. So the question, where does he get his Doug Ramsey-ness from? Well, what happened is when Warlock sort of died in the Extinction Agenda, his friend spread his ashes over Doug Ramsey's grave, which, you know, it's sweet, makes sense. Apparently, those ashes were kind of integrated with what was physically left of Doug's body, and that, and the combination of the times they had techno-organically merged before in the past, meant that Warlock had Doug Ramsey's memories, and thus, through the confusing method of his resurrection by the Phalanx, and then his expulsion from their hive mind, thought he was Doug Ramsey. Now, that could be retconned very, very easily because it's been kind of inconsistent, but I think that's the gist of it. The simple version of that answer is because they're just that close. Yes. Like, they are that close friends, they've got overlapping shared memories, and to an extent, a degree of ego confusion because of the times they've merged. Jay, we've been together for, like, almost 20 years. Does that mean that we know each other's memories if one of us dies? I mean, I think there are definitely things where it's hard to distinguish between the stuff we actually remember and the versions that each of us has recounted. Uh, that kind of counts, as That's, long as we can be I cool mean, and... human memories are so slippery, and they're they're so, so easily constructible. I feel like you could, you could just fake it pretty well. Yeah, uh, techno-organic memories as well, apparently. All right, an anonymous listener on Tumblr asks, where would you put the new mutants and Xavier on an alignment grid? Okay, so let's start with Xavier. Uh, Xavier, I'm gonna say he's, uh, lawful neutral. Definitely lawful, strict moral code, but not exactly a moral code other people would share. See figure one, Deadly Genesis. What about Magneto? Because let's do him too. I would say that during at least this era, Magneto is lawful neutral. In general, he ranges from lawful neutral to chaotic neutral. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Okay, so now the actual new mutants, Karma. Uh, you know, maybe neutral good, but I would probably argue for true neutral. I mean, she tries to do the right thing, but she always does it for her own reasons. Uh, what about Mirage? Probably chaotic good, maybe sometimes chaotic neutral. Yeah, yeah, I think I'll buy that. I mean, obviously everyone undergoes massive alignment shifts when they turn into X-Force, too. Then they just become chaotic extreme. Yeah, but I would put her in chaotic good for the most part. Let's see, um, Cannonball, that's an easy one. Yeah, Cannonball is the very incarnation of neutral good. If you look up neutral good in the D&D dictionary, there's just a picture of Sam Guthrie and he's being charming and being the best kid. All right, uh, what about Magic? Assuming that she's got a fair degree of Ileana Rasputin going on chaotic neutral. Uh, the Dark Child is obviously chaotic, chaotic evil. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. Sunspot. 
Uh, let's go with Lawful Neutral, same as Xavier and Magneto. Really? I would actually have him range from Lawful Neutral to Lawful Evil. Lawful Evil? I mean, maybe that weird he version of him in the a, future. He spends a fair lot of time in the Hellfire Club, and he will do a lot of things for power. Like, his main struggle is between altruism and power and self-aggrandizement. I would say sometimes he veers into Lawful Evil. But so can we go outside the main alignment grid for this, actually? Because I feel like he does have one even more defining. I know where you're going with this, because, yeah, your alignment is sort of based on the ideals you hold uh, so close. So Right. So lawful Magnum P.I. Lawful Magnum P.I. Canon. Okay. All right. Wolfsbane. Lawful good. Totally lawful good. Cypher. Before his death, neutral good. After resurrection, true neutral. Uh, Yeah, I'll buy that. And Warlock. Warlock's totally chaotic good. No yeah, question. Yeah, no question. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and one of the things that you get if you uh, stay on at certain support tiers on Patreon is thanks in a variety of fictional character voices. We've had a long spate of ones from me. Miles finally gets to do some sexy voice thanks, so I will turn it over to, I believe, Sexy Gambit. Gambit appreciate attractive people no matter how they dressed. That what Gambit like about masquerades, getting to see a different side of sexy, body and soul. But Gambit forget, he's supposed to be in disguise, Nespa. So Gambit turned it over to Harpo Marx, who got his own way of talking about fire. Fern Bedortha, if you know what Gambit mean. Andy Balecki, that what Gambit talking about. Okay, so Rachel and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, recaps, and much, much more. Our show is totally listener-supported, as uh, sexy Gambit Harpo Marks showed us earlier, and ad-free and is made possible by our amazing Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to support the show, help us do what we do, check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. Next week, X-Factor saves Christmas. Ship is the politest ship. And the kids use all of their mutant might to make sure Iceman doesn't get a kiss. No, seriously. Seriously.